Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled, Tell Them to Stop for World Communion Sunday, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October the 1st, 2006. In his new book that deserves a wide readership, Exploring Protestant Traditions, an invitation to theological hospitality. The theologian David Bushhart recounts a conversation with his mother when he was about 10 years old, the gist of which was that whereas his buddies were Catholic, Presbyterian, and Methodist, his mother described his family as quote-unquote just Christians. That succinct description had its merits, <clears throat> and it satisfied Bushhart in some important ways for some time. But later, he began to observe a troubling pattern among different denominations. Nearly every Christian tradition, it seemed, tried to occupy an ecclesiastical or spiritual high ground as the so-called genuine descendants of Jesus Christ in the New Testament church, unlike, of course, all those other posers and wannabes. Examples of this Christian superiority complex are easy to come by. The Eastern Orthodox churches, for example, confess that they alone are the one true church of Christ on earth. In various times and ways, Roman Catholics have claimed that outside the church there is no salvation. One of the earliest and most colorful expressions of this comes from Cyprian, who lived from 200 to the year 258. Cyprian was Bishop of Carthage in North Africa, and he wrote that, quote, you cannot have God for your father unless you have the church for your mother. About a thousand years later, on November 18, 1302, Pope Boniface VIII left no ambiguity in the matter when in his bull Unum Sanctum he wrote, we declare, say, define, and pronounce that it is absolutely necessary for the salvation of every human creature to be subject to the Roman pontiff. Protestants, for their part, inherit the superiority complex as encoded into their very theological DNA. Whereas the Orthodox and Catholic traditions place the church above, quote-unquote, quote the Bible, and strictly mediate its interpretation, the Protestant Reformation, with Bibles newly translated into the common vernacular of everyday people, placed the Bible directly into the hands of individual believers to read for themselves. Thus, they placed scripture in, that is, the interpretation of it, quote-unquote, over the church. This revolutionized the role of the Bible in the church, but it created a new set of problems one of which is the Protestant inclination to radical individualism and sectarian splintering into endless new denominations, each one of which believes that it parses the truth better than the group they left. The Orthodox scholar George Florovsky thus called this Protestant view of Scripture, quote-unquote, the sin of the Reformation, because it can lead to arbitrary, subjective, and privatistic interpretations of the Bible. It's a short step, when you think about it, from a legitimate personal encounter with God through Scripture 
unmediated by church officialdom, to a tragic contortion of the gospel that generates a cult or a sect. Mark's gospel this week for World Communion Sunday provides the perfect antidote for Christian one-upmanship, an oxymoron if ever there was one. Just after arguing about who of them was the greatest, and just before James and John asked Jesus for positions of glory, Mark writes that the disciples saw an anonymous healer cast out demons in Jesus' name. This person was unknown to them, and so was probably peripheral to the Jesus movement. He was not one of us, they complained, so we told them to stop as if this anonymous healer needed their authorization as the sole proprietors of the mission of Jesus. Their presumption and exclusionary attitude was sadly ironic, because whereas the disciples had failed in exercising demons just a few chapters ago, chapter 9, 14 to 18, this healer was successful. No, said Jesus, don't stop them, for whoever is not against us is for us. Even, he added, a simple kindness like giving someone a sip of water advances his kingdom. The two Old Testament readings this week expand Jesus' insistence that the kingdom of God grows in ways and in means that we might not imagine and that we sometimes might even try to prevent. Literary affinities leave some scholars to connect Mark's passage with the story of Eldad and Medad in Numbers chapter 11. When Moses appointed 70 elders, Eldad and Medad stood on the fringes of the community. Yet we read, quote, Yet the Spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied. End quote. When Joshua objected, Tell them to stop, Moses rebuked him. Quote, I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Then there's the story of the Jewish woman Esther who married the pagan king Xerxes of Persia and who through bizarre circumstances thwarted Haman's genocidal plot to annihilate the Jews. Yahweh is never mentioned in this book of the Bible never seen and never heard from in the entire book, even though, by one count, the pagan king Xerxes is mentioned 190 times. Further, the plot of Esther hinges on intrigue, hatred, deceit, and eventual revenge by the Jews who massacred 75,000 of their enemies. Nor is there any mention of the Mosaic law, ritual purity, or the Hebrew sense of justice, mercy, and kindness. For these reasons, the book of Esther has had both Christian and Jewish detractors who objected to its inclusion in the biblical canon. But every year since then, Jews have observed the Feast of Purim, quote, as the month when their sorrow was turned to joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. Esther chapter 9, verse 22. God was powerfully at work through Esther, even though no one ever spoke his name. This Sunday celebrates World Communion Sunday, and it affords Christians an opportunity to confess our propensity to exclude other people who are different from us.
As we read in the Gospel for this week, Mark chapter 9, verse 38, He was not one of us. Bushart, in his new book, invites us to what he calls theological hospitality. Instead of defaulting to our insecurities about those whom we find strange or fringe, to ignorance, fear, and what he so aptly describes as a sincere yet uninformed stereotype of others, we do well to celebrate the considerable diversity that exists both within and among our Christian traditions. After all, says Bushart, one mark of a cult is quote-unquote enforced conformity, whereas authentic Christianity celebrates genuine diversity along with our many continuities and continalities. And now for further reflection. What experiences have you had that illustrate the fears, insecurities, and instinct for control exhibited by the disciples in Mark chapter 9? What lessons might we take from the book of Esther about God's presence in history? Consider the implications of what Bushart calls theological hospitality. Do we really believe that a simple act like offering a drink to someone expresses God's kingdom? Or maybe this is just a metaphor. And finally, I'd recommend again David Bushart's new book, Exploring Protestant Traditions, An Invitation to Theological Hospitality. InterVarsity Press, 2006. In this book, Bushart devotes successive chapters to the history, theological method, and doctrinal distinctives of eight traditions, Lutheran, Anabaptist, Reformed, Anglican, Baptist, Wesleyan, Dispensational, and Pentecostal. For books this week, I review David Augsburger, Dissident Discipleship, A Spirituality of Self-Surrender, Love of God, and Love of Neighbor. Grand Rapids, Brazos Press, 2006, 245 pages. A friend once observed that our church teaching and preaching ought to, quote, put the cookies on a higher shelf. Setting the bar higher is exactly what David Augsburger tries to do in his new book, Dissident Discipleship. In contrast to what he calls standard Christian spirituality, authentic or genuine discipleship is necessarily dissident because it radically subverts conventional wisdom and values. In the words of Jim Wallace, whom Augsburger quotes, quote, what matters most today is whether one is a supporter of establishment Christianity or a practitioner of biblical faith. Establishment Christianity has made its peace with the established order. It no longer feels itself to be in conflict with the pretensions of the state, with the designs of economic and political power, or with the values and style of life enshrined in the national culture. Establishment Christianity is a religion of accommodation and conformity, which values realism and success more than faithfulness and obedience." End quote. Drawing upon his deep roots in the Anabaptist tradition, 
Augsburger proposes a so-called tripolar spirituality with three interdependent movements, upwards towards God, inward towards self, and outward towards neighbor. In contrast to what he calls monopolar and bipolar spiritualities. In successive chapters, he describes the seven traits or practices of this subversive spirituality. Radical attachment, stubborn loyalty, tenacious serenity, habitual humility, resolute nonviolence, concrete service, and authentic witness. After a concluding chapter, he includes six appendices. Given his Anabaptist heritage, Augsburger interacts with the sorts of scholarly sources that you might expect. Graybill, Wallace, William Stringfellow, Yoder, Will Campbell, Tolstoy, and so on. Theologically, the Anabaptist tradition epitomizes Niebuhr's Christ-against-culture paradigm. So believers who incline to say, for example, to the paradigms Christ of culture, or perhaps Christ above culture, will take exception to its underlying assumptions. Practically speaking, in claiming that his is not your ordinary garden variety of spirituality, but stubborn, persistent, and radical spirituality appearing in unusual people across the last 2,000 years, Augsburger inadvertently, and I'm sure unintentionally, claims the high ground for what you might think of as an elite Marine Corps of spirituality. The majority of usual ordinary believers who are enmeshed in the compromises and contradictions of everyday lives, jobs, families, and finances are thus consigned to the status of pikers and posers. Finally, I found Augsburger's book overwritten and very awkward in style. But in the end, he does a fine job of pointing us towards true north in God's kingdom. Reading the Sermon on the Mount convinces me of that. David Augsburger, Dissident Discipleship For film this week, I review a movie called Peace One Day from the year 2004. The British filmmaker Jeremy Gilley documents his personal campaign to establish one single day of global peace and nonviolence. In fact, when he began his quest, he discovered that Costa Rica had actually won approval for an original International Day of Peace way back in 1981. So his quest was to reinvigorate the day with a new and fixed date, September 21st of every year at the United Nations. It took five years of meetings with school children, Nobel Peace laureates, heads of state, NGO bureaucrats, media moguls, and even the Dalai Lama. But on September 7th, 2001, note the date, the United Nations voted unanimously to approve a resolution to designate every September 21st as the new International Day of Peace. But in the bitterest of ironies, Kofi Annan was scheduled to ring the peace bell and proclaim the change on September 11th the last day of peace before the new fixed date on September 21st took effect the following years. 
Yes, the documentary includes Gilly's naysayers who derided his quest as a hapless and romantic gesture. But I, for one, join those who saluted him for doing anything and everything to encourage humanity to forsake violence in war. Peace One Day from the year 2004. And finally, for poetry, we've posted a poem, Come My Way, by one of my favorite poets, George Herbert, who lived from 1593 to 1633. Come my way, my truth, my life, such a way as gives us breath, such a truth as ends all strife, such a life as killeth death. Come, my light, my feast, my strength, such a light as shows a feast, such a feast as men's in length, such a strength as makes his guest. Come, my joy, my love, my heart, such a joy as none can move, such a love as none can part, such a heart as joys in love. George Herbert, come, my way, my truth, my life. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October 1st, 2006, World Communion Sunday. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.